0: Last Saturday, so Saturday a week ago, it was my wife's birthday. And due to her being an extreme sports fan, I decided to take her to one of the best places that we could possibly be Baton Rouge. A city on the banks of the Mississippi, and home to the LSU Tigers. Now, I want to put this in perspective for you because it is an experience. Some of you MU fans in the house, MU fans, come on. Don't be bashful. I know it's been a little difficult, but don't be bashful, all right? Some of you know what it's like to head to MU To to be in a stadium where last year MU averaged 51,500 people per home game. That's what this represents 51,500 people. And so, if you've been there and you know what it's like when they all at once decide to shout and just the noise and the excitement in a stadium, I got nothing against MU. I've only lived here for 25 years, so it just wasn't where my heart first belonged. My heart belongs here, where in Tiger Stadium last year, per home game, they averaged 100,800 people. So I'm just trying to say, you gotta take 51,000 and double it. It is big and it is loud and there really aren't any words for me to describe what that experience is like. There are traditions that are attached to every football program, such as the case at LSU, and there is one in particular that I wanna tell you about. It's what happens at every home game that overlaps sunset. So during a game, When sunset happens, at the moment of sunset, you will hear the announcer of the stadium say these words, ladies and gentlemen, the sun has found its home in the western sky. It is Saturday night in Death Valley and 100,000 Cajuns lose their minds. I'm not kidding. A 100,000 people scream at the top of their lungs and it is just chills. It is just impossible to describe. At a moment of closure, sunset, it is a call to fight. Now I'm not trying to waste your time this morning with my experiences, because I know you probably care less about the LSU Tigers. But I am trying to draw a picture for you of what I hear from the voice of the Apostle Paul in the letter written to Timothy that we're studying right now, 2 Timothy. You see, Paul knows it is the sunset of his life. Paul knows that he has come to the end and the sun is about to set on his life in this world. And he calls Timothy, and he calls me, and he calls you to fight for what matters most. It's good to be back with you. And I'm glad that you have chosen to be here with us today. I want to send a shout out to the Adrian campus. Hope that you guys are doing good. Actually, everybody ought to be doing good today because you got an extra hour of sleep, right? If, if you wanted it, right? We should be doing good today. So we're going to dig right in. I want to encourage you to use the outline that you got in your your worship guide today. There's some blanks for you to fill in. The reason we do that is to help you hold on to what we're going to talk about in these next moments together. Before there was salt life, you know what I mean when I say salt life? And before there was urban life and before there was any of the other lives that you see stickers on the backs of cars and trucks, before all of that, there was Jesus' life. And the way Paul opens the second chapter of 2 Timothy is to give us some characteristics of what this Jesus' life is like. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1, reads like this. You then, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I want you to know, Jesus' life requires his grace. That's your first blank. Fill it in. Jesus' life requires his grace. Timothy, be strong in this grace. In Ephesians, In Ephesians, we learn that we have a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. But how does that happen? It happens according to his power that is at work in us. It's him. It's his grace. It's his strength. Now in 2 Timothy, we are learning that, that he's calling us to keep on feeding this intense flame of God's gift that's in us. What is the gift? It is unashamed courage. Unashamed courage to speak of Christ and to suffer for the gospel. And the way Paul answers the how question, how do you do that? It's grace. It's his grace. Many of you have heard us say this before. The Jesus life is not difficult. It is impossible without his grace. It's impossible without His grace. That is the theme throughout the New Testament, and it is the theme throughout this little letter of 2 Timothy. Let's keep reading, verse two. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. In other words, we learned that Jesus' life doesn't Stop with me. The Jesus life doesn't stop with you. Timothy, what I've taught you, I want you to teach others so that they can do what? Teach others. You're giving it away. You're always giving it away. When it comes to ministry, ministry doesn't stop with you. God has given you gifts and abilities so that you will do what? Serve others. Discipleship doesn't stop with you because you are called to make disciples of others. Evangelism doesn't stop with you because you are commissioned to share the good news that you have heard. It's changed your life, and now you are to spread that news. It never stops with me or you. God, give us a faith that doesn't stop with us. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Join with me in suffering, like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul says Jesus' life also involves suffering. Now we talked about last week, this really is a theme, it really is the message of this letter of 2 Timothy. There's only four chapters in the letter. And more than 14 times, Paul talks about unashamed suffering. The message is, if you want an easy life, don't follow Jesus. If you want a comfortable life, don't follow Jesus. Now, if you want to know the highest joy and the ultimate peace and the greatest love, then follow Jesus. But know that in following Jesus, there will be suffering suffering and because of that it is the reason that we chose the title for this series that we have chosen it's a study of the letter of second timothy but a series that we're calling grace and grit grace and grit grace because good news from eternity past god has planned to be gracious to you That's really good news for you. Even before you were born, he planned to be gracious to you. But this Jesus life also involves a grit, Paul says, because he calls us in this little book to feed this fire that is within us. He calls us not to give up, not to give in. He calls us to fight all the way to the end, although he knows there will be suffering In this fight last week we learned a quote from a guy named Dallas Willard it said grace is not opposed to effort but it is opposed to earning and what we mean by that is the grit that we're talking about here is not just gritting this out trying to find the favor of God no that comes by grace but the grit we're talking about in this study is because God's grace has already Been poured out on us. That's why Paul's willing to suffer. That's why Paul's willing to keep on fighting. That's why he's in prison. It's why at times he's rejected. It's why sometimes he goes without food or shelter or sleep. And it's why Paul is calling us to the same level of grit. So for Garden City... Did you enjoy the grits this morning? Did you like that touch? Little theme grits going on? Some of y'all didn't even get here in time for breakfast. First, first Sunday, we always gave some breakfast together. Today it was grits. Did you enjoy the grits? And my answer would be, if you did not enjoy the grits, you simply did not put enough sugar on them. <laughs> I told you. You just got to put a little more sugar. Funny story, last week, or not last week, two weeks ago, when, when we had that talk, A lady came up to me right after service, and she said, so what part of the South are you from? I said, Louisiana. She said, oh. I said, what? She said, well, that explains why you don't put salt and pepper on your grits. (laughs) Oh. I said, where are you from? She said, Georgia. So I neglected to tell you that it depends on where you're from, but the the point's still the same. You got to understand the purpose of grits. They are a container for something else. They might be a container for salt and pepper. They might be a container for butter and sugar. But the point is, grits alone, mm, not really that good. But in the right context, good. It's the same principle we're trying to understand in this walk of faith. When we talk about grit, when we talk about fight, when we talk about working hard, it's not grit alone that doesn't work. But in the context of grace, Paul says this is something good. So the question Paul's going to answer for us today then is how are we fit for such grit? How are we fit? or such grit that we are called to live out. Let's read a little bit more. Verse 4, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. That's an image translates for us today, right? Somebody in the military, your attention is not all over the place. All all no, No, your attention is on your commanding officer. So this is the way we're going to say it. When we talk about being fit for grit, it starts with a focus of the soldier. It's about having a focus of the soldier. And with each one of these, I'm going to give you an application piece of it. It's like, then how should this affect us? How should it affect us individually? How should it affect us as a church? Well, this is how it, it would affect us. We've gotta to learn to measure success by insistent obedience. We gotta to learn to measure success by insistent obedience because our focus is on our commanding officer, not everywhere else. In other words, we don't measure success by the praise of people. We don't. We don't measure success by people's praise. We got to make sure we measure success by the praise that comes from our God. It, It means we don't measure success even by results. Do you get that? Now That one messes with us because everything else in the world in which we live measures success by results. You, you, a corporate world, any other part of our society would say to you, if you're not getting results, you are failing. <laughs> if you're not getting results, you are failing. But that is not how it works in the kingdom of God. And that's why I think we struggle with it so much. Does God want His church to grow? Absolutely. Does He want us to celebrate the growth of His church? Absolutely. But sometimes things like numerical growth is not always an indication of real growth. Would you not agree with me? Sometimes people can attend church but not obey Jesus. So we can come together and count the numbers and go woo woo, we got more people here this week. But if it's not centered in obedience, to Jesus' lives that are insistent on just having our focus on our commanding officer, then that's not really faithful. When you read the book of Hebrews, you find a long list of people who are described as faithful. I often refer to it as the hall of faith because it's a long list from the Old Testament all the way forward. You read that description. Sometimes... God would do things like shut the mouths of lions so that lives could be saved. But you read it, other times, the mouths of lions were left open and lives were lost. And on both descriptions, the people were described as faithful. Why? Because they were obedient. To the only one, their commanding officer. That, that's why they were faithful. Sometimes prophets would declare God's word and big numbers of people would turn toward God. Other times prophets would declare God's word and nobody would listen. And in both occasions they were both described, the prophets, as faithful. Why? Because the measure was obedience, it's obedience. Fit starts with a focus, like a soldier with insistent obedience. You understand it changes how we should see who we are as a church, it changes how we should measure who we are as a church. Our measure of faithfulness, it's about obedience. Let's keep reading, verse, Five, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete, so first picture was of a what? Soldier. Second picture, athlete. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The way I'm going to sum up what I believe that statement means is if we're going to be fit for grit, then it involves the integrity of the athlete, the integrity, having an integrity of the athlete. How does that affect us? It means we must learn to measure success by consistent discipline. Consistent discipline. Now, let me give you a little background. I, I, I believe with all my heart that Paul was a sports fan. He was. I think he was a sports fan. He brings up the image too much in his letters. Well, he knew that for the games in his day, there were three prerequisites that every athlete had to fulfill. One, they had to prove that they were a true born Greek true born Greek second they had to prepare 10 months in advance of the competition 10 months and a part of the process is that that athlete would stand before the statue of Zeus and he would swear that he had planned or prepared for 10 months and a part of the promise was that if he had not Zeus had the liberty to take his life. Now I understand they're talking to somebody who can't talk back, but you're still getting, you you still get the point of the commitment. They, They were called to 10 months of training and basically saying, if I'm lying about this, then take me out. And third, they had to stay within the rules of the event of competition itself. If any of those three were not true, the rules of birth, the rules of training, or the rules of competition, that athlete was disgraced and instantly disqualified. So if you take that context and you lay that over into Paul talking to us about about having the integrity of an athlete, what's he saying? He's saying it comes by actually being a true born Christian one who truly has been reborn, and a new birth, the, the old, gone, brand new in Christ. He's saying you, there is an integrity. You, you, it, it's got to be for real with you. And, and a real believer must have uh, training in, in the matters of self-denial. That's really what training's all about. You, you watch an athlete who goes through a process. They deny themselves usually of the things that they really want, in order to train their bodies to be at full strength. It's about self-denial. And then he says, you gotta compete. You You gotta be compelled to win. You actually have to get in the fight. You actually have to get in the game. One of the ways we talk about it around here is putting on the jersey, right? that you identify with who you belong to, but what I have come to realize, that in the church there are a lot of people wearing jerseys, but they bought their jerseys at Academy Sports. It's not because they're actually on the team. They may sit in a room and wear a jersey, but they're not actually on the team. But Paul says when all those things are in place, you are going to be a disciplined competitor and victory belongs to the disciplined. We'll come back to that a little bit. Fit involves focus, fit involves integrity. And then check out verse six, verse six. The hardworking, who's up now? A farmer. I love the fact that the three images that Paul picked still transfer today. They really do. When we hear those images, we're not going, hmm, what is that? I mean, all three of them continue to work. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. I think the quality that Paul's given us from the farmer is what I would call a tenacity. It is a tenacity. And therefore, we must learn to measure success by a persistent work ethic. A persistent work ethic. The verb there means to work to the point of exhaustion. It is literally to wear yourself out, to sweat, to strain. Somewhere along the line, um, there is some false information that I think gets fed to followers of Jesus that if something requires a whole lot of work, it must not be from Jesus. If something brings a weariness to you, which means you're supposed to rest on a regular basis, by the way, you'd be amazed what happens if you rest on a regular basis. But if it brings some, tight, some sweat, some work, it, if it's hard, then it must not be from Jesus. Well, we're not reading the same letters. He says, you gotta do what must be done, no matter what the weather, no matter what the difficulty, no matter how mundane it might be. It is the picture of a person who works to the point of total exhaustion, even in perpetual, what I'm gonna call just humdrum duty. In other words, the farmer is not necessarily like a soldier who can wear the badges of courage and knows the glory of victory. He's not like an athlete who who wears the crown on his head and steps onto the podium for the applause of people. No, the, the farmer plows and sows and tends, fights the frost, fights the heat, too much water, too little water, bugs, weeds, you name it. But he patiently waits and he patiently works because he wants to see the crop come in. But many days, it is not a great thrill It's just the ordinary, almost boring, humdrum routine. But he keeps going. He keeps going. Do you know that that is a part of ministry sometimes? Do you know that that is a part of following Jesus sometimes? That there are those seasons sometimes where you go, I'm not really seeing anything happen. I'm not, I'm not really seeing any lightning bolts today, not seeing any mountains being moved today." And he says, the farmer, he just gets up and he takes another day and he works as hard as he possibly can. He's looking forward, he's looking forward. Chuck Close was an, was an artist, and, and one time he was asked, where do you find inspiration? His response was, Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us get up and go to work. Now, he's not bashing inspiration, but the point that he's saying is, I don't get up every day and wait to be inspired so that I draw. He says, I get up every day and I draw. And sometimes, out of the drawing, there is great inspiration. Some of you need to hear, that's actually the way it works with work. That's actually the way it works with marriage. That's actually the way it works with ministry. You don't just find inspiration. That's not the starting point. You cultivate it. The passion is a byproduct of continuing to work. It's not the starting point. Hmm. So fit. Here's the picture we're given. The focus, an integrity, and a tenacity, insistent obedience, consistent discipline, and a persistent work ethic. And you put that together, Paul says, Timothy, you're fit for grit. You're fit for grit. Any of you ever heard the story of the 20-mile march it is a story that I heard read some time ago the context happened in the year 1911 so a long time ago the location was the South Pole now at the South Pole in we're gonna call it the summertime temperatures can reach some 20 degrees below zero in the wintertime It can reach some 75 degrees below zero. There were two adventurers who decided to to face off in a race, if you will, and become the first person in modern history to reach the South Pole and then make it back home alive. That's the goal. One of those teams was led by a man named Robert Falcon Scott. Now, if your middle name's Falcon, you probably ought to be an adventure guy. That's kind of cool. Robert Falcon Scott. The other guy was named Roald Amundsen. Amundsen. Both of them were about the same age. Both of them had about the same experience. They both started right about the same date, and they both would have to brave the elements. But they had drastically different strategies as to how they would make this 1,400-mile trek. Scott made the determination that he would lead his team really based on the conditions that they had to deal with. When the weather was good, they would go for it. And sometimes they would, they would hike up to 30, 40, even 50 miles on the day that the, the sun was shining and the weather was good. On, on bad days, when you just had those gale force winds, they really wouldn't go very far at all, sometimes not going anywhere at all he decided to allow what they had to deal with, the environment, to determine their distance. Amundsen, on the other hand, decided that he and his team every day would march, you wanna guess, 20 miles. Every day we're going to travel 20 miles, regardless of what anything else is that's going on around us. So on the good days, he would travel 20 miles, And then he would declare, We're shutting it down and we're gonna rest for the afternoon, even though everybody else on his team is challenging him, Come on, the sun's shining and everything's great, let's let's keep going. Nope, twenty miles on a good day. On a bad day, twenty miles. Even though they were complaining, we shouldn't even be out here to start with, right? We've gone far enough. No, 20 miles is the target, and then we're going to rest. He refused to let the environment, he refused to let the complaints of his team sway him. Every day, 20 miles, and then they would rest. So if I'm telling you this story, you probably won't guess who wins. It's Amundsen the one who went a consistent 20 miles every day. Scott and his team arrived some 34 days later. So more than a month later, they beat them by. And on the return trip home, Scott and all of his team actually lost their lives. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this? Well, number one, don't take an expedition to the South Pole, right? (laughs) Some things are just kind of obvious, right? I heard this this week. I heard this this week. Think about it. Every single corpse on Mount Everest was a highly motivated person. Stay lazy, my friends. That That was the advice. Don't you like that? No, 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 no. That's not the point. That's not the point. The lesson is discipline determines direction. Discipline determines direction. There is more power in faithfully and consistently taking small daily steps than making huge but inconsistent strides. Now a part of discipline isn't just getting up every day and and, and taking the trek. The discipline is knowing what's too much and what's not. So the question and how this applies to us is, can we just be honest? Can we just be honest and go, why would we do this suffering thing? <laughs> can somebody, can we just ask the question, why would we follow Jesus and do this suffering thing? Why are we going to follow Jesus if this, if this requires hard work? Why are we going to fight for self-discipline and deny ourselves some of those things that our heart really wants? Why would we do that? Around here, it's the question we ask every once in a while. What's your why? What's your why? And Paul's going to end this thing by giving us some compelling reasons. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Why would we do this? Because we serve a risen Savior. That's why we would do this. There's no point to this if Jesus is still dead. But the good news is, he's not. And if he is risen, then everything he ever said needs to be taken full to heart. Everything else that he said, that needs to be our focus. You you realize that in those first few centuries, Christianity spread on this truth. Uh, They didn't have gospel tracts. Right? There were, there were no student camps to go to, no, no revival services. They didn't even have like the Bible like we have all together now. They would have had these letters like Paul is distributing to the church at Ephesus. Some of them, the, the really elite, would have some of the Old Testament scrolls, but they didn't even have the, the, the whole Bible like we get to hold in our hands today. But the truth is none of that would have even mattered if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But he did, and that's what gave Christianity its power, and that's what fueled those early believers to keep on fighting with unashamed courage even when it meant the sound of a prison door being slammed behind them. Why would we do this? Because our commander-in-chief once lay dead in the tomb for 3 days then he got up and he will never be in the tomb again that's why we do this paul why do we do this let's go to verse 8 this is my gospel for which i am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal but god's word is not chained What a beautiful way to say that. Why would we do this? Because we share an unstoppable gospel. We share an unstoppable gospel. Paul's like, I might be in prison, but y'all do understand God's Word's not in prison. I may be bound, but you know what? God's Word is not bound. And we just got, some of us need to be reminded of that on a regular basis. You know that job? that you sometimes describe like a prison? <laughs> you go, my, my job, this is, this is the way I feel. Maybe that's how you feel in your marriage. Maybe that's how you feel in your family. Maybe that's how you feel in your school. You might even feel that way in your church. But I'm saying, did you know that even when you feel trapped, God's Word is not trapped? His Word is going out in power always, even in the very place of your suffering. Some of y'all are going through some difficult stuff right now. God's Word is not chained. His Word is moving forward with power, even though you may not see it every time. Believe it. Why would we do this? Verse 10. Verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, you wanna know why we do this? We do this because we fulfill an eternal purpose. That eternal purpose is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, there are people in your life that God has placed by you so that you might be a part of the picture, an instrument in some way of helping them see their need for Jesus. Do you know that? If you are a follower of Jesus, God has put people by you for the purpose of him using you as an instrument that they might see. Their need for Jesus he entrusts you with this message that you would be the one do you believe that let that empower you let that encourage you the grace of Jesus is not supposed to stop with you he's put people by you so again even if it means being, being stuck in what feels like a dead-end job, all of a sudden, when that's attached to an eternal purpose of somebody whose eternity might be forever changed, those on whom God has set his love, he wants them to come to know the hope in Jesus. Embrace it. Believe it. Live it. This is a statement that just I've wrestled with in my mind over the last couple of weeks. Paul is not in prison just because he believes in Jesus. In other words, the way we tend to think about believing in Jesus, Paul's not in prison because he believes in Jesus. Paul's in prison because he wanted you to believe in Jesus too in other words he didn't just claim to believe and keep his mouth shut in the difficult circumstance well where I work well where I go to school where where I'm at here's the pushback and here's what people do and so you know what I'm not real loud about it and I don't I don't really talk about it a whole lot I just try to keep my mouth shut Paul doesn't, Paul's not a guy who associates believing in Jesus with keeping his mouth shut. So he's not in prison just because he would say at church, I believe in Jesus. He's in prison because everywhere he goes, he wanted you to believe in Jesus too. God, give us a faith that doesn't stop with us. One more, verse 11. Here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we disown Him, He will also disown us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. Now, we could do a whole sermon just on that text, but I'm going to try to give this some summary. There's two positives and there's two negatives in that, little, in that little piece. He says, in the context of suffering, so here's believers who are suffering because they belong to Jesus and they're bold about declaring it to the people around them. He says, if that costs you your life, you're gonna live, because it's bigger than this life. This is just a blip on the radar of what an eternal life means. A life with Jesus, if this suffering costs you your life, you're going to live with him. And if you are enduring this suffering, maybe it doesn't end up costing you your life directly, but you are going through so much struggle. He's saying you realize for all of eternity, you are going to reign with him. You're going to reign with him. So what are we looking at here? Why would we do this? It's because... Of Jesus promise he's promising even if you lose your life you live with me forever even if you are enduring suffering you are gonna reign with me forever it is a promise that there is a bigger picture here but he's also honest to say but if you disown me I will disown you and if you are faithless which I believe here is just another way of describing what disown means. It's another word that means the same thing. He's saying you understand though, he will be faithful because he cannot disown himself. So even to the unbeliever, he is faithful that his warning to you is if you reject this Jesus, There is an eternal consequence, an eternal separation. There is an eternal punishment, and he will always be the faithful judge who is true to his word. Because what he promises, he always fulfills. What he says, he is always true to. So come on, you're going through the struggle. His promise, his promise. Most of us are not in struggles right now where we are fearing for our life. Most of us are not, I told you that's the clash. That's the clash that's happening from the context of Second Timothy where most of the people that Paul's writing this letter to, it really is a possibility that if they are unashamed courage, if they demonstrate unashamed courage, speak about Jesus, they, they are going to end up in prison and some of them are gonna die. Most of us, our worst scenario is we're going to say something and we might offend somebody. I suppose there could be a, a scenario where somebody could lose their job. I mean, there, there are some, but it's not life and death. But the promise, the promise He's saying, come on, no matter what this costs you, you you are going to live with me. No matter what this costs you, you are going to reign with me. No matter what this costs you, I will be with you. And then obviously for us who are his children, there, there is an ultimate promise that one of these days, he's coming back. He's coming back to take us home. No matter how much suffering, no matter what the cost, no matter what the pain, He's coming back to take us home. Last Saturday, I stood in a stadium and watched people lose their mind over the announcement that the sun, S-U-N, had set in the western sky. And immediately my mind went to the fact, but one day, one day, The Bible tells us it is a promise that the sun, S-O-N, is going to split open the eastern sky, and when that happens on that day, the shout that is a result is going to make Tiger Stadium sound like a whisper. He's coming back, and I realize that the fight seems difficult. And I realize that it seems so risky to speak for him. It seems so risky to reach beyond yourself. But folks, this is real. This is real. And his promises are true. So fight. That's the call. Fight with the focus of a soldier, with the integrity of the athlete, and with the tenacity of a farmer. You gotta keep on fighting. And in verse 7, here's his promise, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. In other words, if if you're not hearing everything I'm telling you, Paul says, his promise is you reflect on this, and he will show you. So why don't we take a few minutes, and let's ask him to do just.